0: Welcome to Salt City for Christmas. It's great to be here with you. Uh, One of the passions that I have as a Bible teacher, and specifically when it comes to kind of familiar Christmas texts, but just the Bible in general, is to correct kind kind of erroneous assumptions that we've all made about the Bible growing up. And so I think one of the readings of the Bible that has really... Hurt a lot of people's faith is to basically open up the Old Testament and start reading through it, and you're looking for heroes in the Old Testament. And so there's no better place, some people would say, to look for heroes than in the kings of Israel. And so you look at Saul, or you look at David, and you look at Solomon, and you sort of see the same pattern in all of their lives things start off really well. And it looks like this is the anointed leader that Israel has been looking for. But then something ridiculous happens in their life. And so what happens in Sunday school is we talk about these kind of exalted moments, David killing Goliath, but we don't talk about David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And so we get this picture growing up that the kings are our heroes and sort of the leaders that we're supposed to emulate. And I think that comes down to our day and our culture as well. Not so much looking at the Old Testament, but looking at whether it's celebrities or it's looking at celebrity pastors or it's looking at political figures, we want them to be leaders that we can emulate and what happens is their life from a distance seems to be something that we can emulate for a while. But then we can become super cynical about institutions, including the church, because we see person after person fall again and again and again. Okay, so here's the question. Why are things that way? Why, whether it's biblical heroes or modern-day cultural heroes, why does everyone seem to be failing us? And we're going to see in the text that it's in the darkness that the glory of Jesus shines. Every leader and every human institution is meant to fail you because Jesus is the anointed leader who will not fail us. He's the one that we're looking for. He's the one that we're longing for. And so we're going to see three reasons for this in Isaiah chapter 11. The first one is his personal integrity. Jesus will not fail us because of his personal integrity. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord okay so here's what's happening in israel is the assyrian army is coming in and they are taking out the northern kingdom of israel and isaiah is saying that at some point An outside invading force is also going to take over Judah. And he's looking into the future, and he's seeing that Israel's hope for a king, a Messiah, in the line of David would become not a tree, but a stump. In other words, the hope of a king would be completely cut off. And so Israel would sort of metaphorically be standing around this stump And they would be looking at the stump and they would be saying, we thought that from the lineage of David, there was going to be an anointed leader who would not fail us. Now, Israel always got tricked into thinking that it was going to be the tallest king or the smartest king, the best-looking king, who would be their next leader. But this is what Isaiah prophesies. He says, what's going to happen is a shoot is going to start growing out of the stump. Now, I don't know about you, but if I saw a shoot growing out of a stump in my yard, I would not conclude the oak tree is going to grow back. My hopes are not dashed. I would think, big deal, get out the weed whacker, cut the shoot off, it kind of looks dumb. And he's saying, don't be surprised when your king comes in a form that you would not expect. He's saying, look, this is going to be a baby born in a manger. There's not going to be any majesty that you would be drawn to him. He's not going to be the best looking. He's not going to be the tallest. He's not going to be the strongest. There's going to be nothing in his physical form or his appearance or his demeanor that would make you think, this is the king that we've been looking for. So how would they know that he was the king that they were looking for? It's because the Spirit of the Lord would rest on him. Okay, so here's what we saw in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord would rush on the kings. Solomon, for example, has this huge dose of the Spirit of the Lord where he is filled with all of this wisdom, but then it seems like the Spirit of the Lord sort of departs from him, and he goes his own way and ends up sort of shipwrecking his own life. And so there's this pattern where the kings are filled with the Spirit, but then at some point, because of their own sinful choices, the Spirit of the Lord leaves them. He says, not so with this anointed leader. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. From top to bottom, he will be filled with personal integrity every single day of his life. Jesus' closest followers said about him that no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, in all of their time hanging out with Jesus during his earthly life, they said he never said anything wrong. And here's what Isaiah says will mark the Spirit of the Lord resting on the person we now call Jesus. He said, it will be a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So what we see is that this person, Jesus, will be a person of integrity, a, a full person. See, we, we tend to be lopsided people. It's like our strengths also have a shadow side. So in other words, if we're a person of Counsel or understanding. In other words, we're very level-headed. We might lack courage. So what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus will be a person both of counsel, that is, he'll be level-headed. He won't sort of fly off the handle. He'll make decisions in a very measured and orderly way. But he'll also be a person of might. He'll be bold. He'll be courageous. Then it says, that he'll also be a person of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little bit afraid sometimes when somebody has a lot of knowledge because it seems like knowledge tends to make us feel proud and make us feel like we have all the answers and we don't need anybody else. But it says that Jesus would carry his knowledge in such a way that it also be tethered to the fear of the Lord which means knowledge wouldn't sort of run wild, but it would be held accountable under the authority of God. So what we see in this text is that Jesus will be known to us by his perfectly integrated personal integrity. He will be the leader. He is the leader who will not fail us because what you see is what you get. There's no hidden sin. There's no hidden motive. There's no hidden agenda. He is exactly what he appears to be. Now, there's kind of this amazing sermon that I read quite a while ago, but I revisit every once in a while because it's shaped my perspective uh, theologically about Jesus quite a bit. It's a sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards who uh, lived a long time ago, but the, the sermon is called The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and anyway, here's three of the main points that Edwards makes in this sermon about Jesus. He says, number one, there is a conjunction of such excellencies in Christ as, in our manner of conceiving, are very diverse from one another. The second thing he says is there is in him a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. And then the third thing he says is such diverse excellencies are exercised in him toward men that otherwise would have seemed impossible to be exercised toward the same object. So, here's what Edwards is saying. saying. This is the amazing thing about Jesus, is in him are such diverse excellencies, he says, I would call those character qualities or marks of his integrity, that don't seem like they could possibly exist in the same person. So, Edwards wasn't teaching on this text, but I think he could have made those exact same three points from this text. He's saying it doesn't make sense that someone would be a person of wisdom and understanding. It doesn't make sense that a person would be a person of counsel and might. It doesn't make sense that somebody would be a person of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the proof that Jesus is the divine son of God and the leader that we're looking for is that these excellencies exist in the same person and the last point he makes is that the excellencies perfectly correspond with the need that we have for such a leader. Isn't that true? Think about the leaders. Maybe it's over the past year. Maybe it's over the past several years. Maybe you got caught up in, in politics. Maybe you really looked to a certain spiritual leader in your past who failed you. What did you want from them? And my guess is that if you read this passage, You were looking for something that was here. And what does that show? Human institutions are not meant to meet our deepest needs. They are meant to create cravings for Jesus. Could it be that if you traced that longing deep enough into your soul that you would find that only Jesus could meet your desires because of his perfect personal integrity. So secondly, what we see from the passage is that from his integrity, because he's this person of integrity who is who he says he is and the spirit of the Lord rests on him, we see, secondly, his righteous judgment. We're not just looking for A leader who is in themselves perfect. We're looking for a leader who rightly responds to the brokenness of the world. Look with me at verses three through five. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decides disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, so first thing it says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So fear here means respect and admiration. So he will delight in respecting and admiring God for his works and his ways. That will be his standard. Now in Proverbs it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So from that place of worship, the Christ will come and he will be able to rightly discern what is just and what is unjust, and he will have the power to respond in the correct way. And it says, the judgment that he has toward the world will not be based on what his eyes see or what his ears hear. You know, if we've learned anything over the past several years, we need a judge like this. Isn't it so hard to figure out From a video on a phone, what happened in a given situation? And one group of people will react so strongly right away, and another group will react to the exact same video in a completely different way. Why? Because we're all judging based on what our eyes see and our ears hear. And what we're longing for is a judge who can not just look at the evidence, but a judge who can look straight into the hearts of people. Jesus was able to stand in a room of people and he was literally able to hear the thoughts and intentions and motives of their heart in a way that they might not have been able to discern. Jesus knows everyone's intention this morning, even for being here. He sees it all. He doesn't need anyone to tell him what their motives are. He knows them perfectly. He doesn't just know what happened. He knows why it happened. And he knows the deepest root and intention of our heart that caused what happened to happen. And therefore, he is perfectly qualified to judge the world. And he judges the world by the standard of, of righteousness, which means his judgment is unequivocally right about everything. The reason that we can't come to a universal understanding of justice is because we're only judging by what our eyes see and what our ears hear. And we don't have a universally accepted norm of what is right Jesus sees to the heart and he judges what is right and wrong based on his own character, which we already said is perfect personal integrity. And so, all of us stand guilty before King Jesus. And he will judge the living and the dead. The New Testament says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is a warning to all of us not to put ourselves in the place of judge, but to let Jesus be The judge. Because when we place ourselves in the place of judge, what we say to King Jesus is, I can more accurately describe what is just and unjust in this situation than you can. The Bible says, Never avenge for yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. So as Christians, it's not that we don't care about justice, it's that we believe that we are not as qualified as Jesus to judge the world. And there is this deep trust in our souls that he will make everything right. Here's what's true. If there has been a deep injustice done against you, you can rest assured Jesus will make it right. Nobody gets away with anything, ever. Jesus saw it all, and he might be slow from our vantage point, but he's going to get them. And so it's not as Christians that we just sit back and we're just like, okay, turn the other cheek, we love other people. It's not that, it's that this deep conviction that Jesus is going to make everything everything right, allows us to turn the other cheek because we know that in the end, they won't get away with that. So we trust him. Now, there's kind of this interesting saying, you know, I love the prophets because what they do is they argue with you and then they give you a beautiful illustration of what they're talking about. And, and I had to kind of do some research on what this meant. He says, okay, so, so Jesus is this person of perfect righteousness. He's a person of equity. He's going to make everything right. He's going to decide for the poor, judge for the poor, and have equity for the meek. And then he says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Okay, so in this culture, men wore like big, long, flowing robes. And so it's really hard to work in a big, long, flowing robe. So, like, if you went to the marketplace to shop or something like that, you might just let the robe kind of hang and flow. But if you had to go out and do some yard work, you had to put a belt on. And the reason for that is you, you sort of, like, gathered this robe all together, and maybe you do, like, one of those ties on the side or something like that. But you essentially had to get the robe out of your way. And so I think there was even a strap. I'm not going to use my hands too much in this because I just don't want to point in certain places and things. But but essentially, you're gathering the robe up all around you, including your loins, and you're, like, you know, pulling everything together so that you can get to work. So I was thinking about this. The modern-day equivalent to this would be, like, Carhartt industrial work pants, okay? So, like, you see these construction worker guys. If they're going to work, you never see these guys wearing, like, Dockers, right? They're wearing Carhartt industrial, like, like heavy duty work pants. And, and so this text is saying that Jesus puts on righteousness and faithfulness like you would put on a belt or like you would put on work pants. In other words, it holds everything else together, allowing him to get out and get the work done. So, Jesus never does anything without considering that righteousness and faithfulness are the basis on which he's going to do it. It is so fundamental to who he is to do what is right. And this text says this particularly applies to the poor, the weak. And the marginalized. Listen, the political left did not make this up. This is in the Bible. Okay? This is not like conservative or liberal politics. This is the Bible. I'm not getting this from any news channel. I'm getting this from this scripture right here. Look look what this says. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In other words, Jesus understands that there is systemic injustice in our world and that people are treated unfairly because of their wrong in society, that people are taken advantage of because of the color of their skin or because of their economic situation. And he's saying nobody politically is going to be able to figure this out, but I'll take care of it. I'm going to make this right. So Jesus will judge the world with equity, with fairness, and with righteousness. And we see this in part in his earthly ministry, standing up for the poor and the marginalized, caring for people that are caught in sin, that are sort of left on the outside, and sort of ignoring or pushing aside, rebuking those who have power, those who are in control, those are using their position for their own prideful advantage. But that's just the beginning of what Jesus is going to do. His first coming was about offering us the chance to repent and coming into his kingdom. His second coming is about making everything right as it is meant to be. So the last thing we see from Jesus that proves to us that he's the anointed leader who will not fail us is his guaranteed promise. In other words, our future hope. Listen to this. It's an amazing passage. Isaiah eleven six through 10. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Okay, so you've got this picture of these ferocious animals and these farm animals hanging out together. There's no danger from a lion or a cobra or an adder. There's no danger from animals that are now dangerous to us. So he says when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, you are going to look out your window and you are going to see a small child walking a lion in the neighborhood. That is going to be a normal occurrence. Amazing. Now how is that possible? What is fundamentally going to change about our world so it becomes a place where there no longer needs to be any helicopter parents because there's no danger anymore? Why? And Isaiah says what's going to fundamentally change is that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You notice he doesn't say, as the waters cover the earth, as the waters cover the sea. The waters completely cover the sea. It's obvious. So the waters cover the sea. So the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So here's what's fundamentally going to change. All of the animals are going to fully know God's intent and will for them. And every human being on earth is going to fully know God's will and intent for them. Which means what Isaiah is saying is, the reason that the world is so broken, if you take it all back to its primary source and cause, it's that we have, as people on the earth, rejected the knowledge of the Lord. We've said, I can do this on my own. I don't need you, God. I don't need your input on how I should live my life. I don't need your input on what I should look at. I don't need your input on what I should worship. So what darkens our own soul is that we choose to worship the creature rather than the creator. And the result of that, of our fall into sin, is that the entire world has become a broken and fallen place. Even lions and snakes do what they were not intended to do. They seek to kill people. They've turned against us because they are cursed. They have lost the knowledge of the Lord. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about himself and all of us. He says, For now, We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he said, Jesus can look into our hearts and see the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He knows us more fully than we know ourselves. And one day, we will know him that fully. So even the best worship service, the best church service, the best time you've ever had reading your Bible, and you feel like, I know God. I have a relationship with God. That is seeing in a mirror, in a glass, darkly. It's so partial. It's so incomplete that you can barely even call that knowledge. There will come a time when we will see Jesus clearly. Here's how Isaiah puts this. It says, that In that day, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, will stand as a signal for the peoples. A signal it basically means a banner. In our own cultural vernacular, this is like his name is going to be in bright, shining lights. You're not going to see it in a mirror dimly. You're going to see him clearly. There's going to be no need for sun in heaven because the glory of Jesus is going to fill the place with light. Jesus will become absolutely, completely unmissable, whether you're a lion, a snake, or a person. So every person will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God, and as a result of seeing the knowledge of the glory of God, we'll all fall exactly into place where we were meant to be. The world will be exactly as it was supposed to be. Here's the most surprising thing about all. Look what it says that this is going to be like. It says, Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So what we have here is people from every tongue, tribe, and nation filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and what it will feel like is Everlasting soul rest. Notice it doesn't say, and his work will be glorious, and his effort will be glorious. It says, and his rest will be amazing. Isn't that what you want? See, there's this rumor going around that if you get close enough to God, that essentially what you're going to find out is that he's this harsh, demanding, angry guy who's just going to put a whole bunch of burdens on you. And here's what Isaiah is saying. If you climb the mountain of God's holiness, what you'll be surprised by is that when you summit the mountain, it is flat on the top And it is a place of grace. It's a resting place. The heart of God is not anger. The heart of God is grace. You see, Jesus is a God of righteousness because he wants heaven to be a place of rest. And there is no rest when there is sin and so he is fully committed to making everything right. Okay, so what's the application? Let me give you four quick applications. And this is to sort of distance ourselves from finding our hope in political leaders and church leaders and to find our hope in King Jesus. Okay, the first application I would have for you is Bible saturation. Okay, what I mean by Bible saturation is that you are viewing social media and your news consumption through the lens of the Bible rather than viewing the Bible through the lens of your media consumption. So there's two sides to this. If you're really going to have Jesus as your king, you have to put down your phone And you have to pick up the Bible. So there's a negative and there's a positive. But here's my thought for most of you. Most of you, for this to become realized in your life, probably need to get a flip phone for like a year. (laughs) I mean, just, just to be completely honest, you have to be radical about this. Because your mind is so driven by sort of the cultural agenda... That to get the Bible in this, to breathe the cool air of the grace of Jesus and his kingship in your life is like so far from you because you've been discipling yourself with media for so long that in order this to be realized, it's going to take a radical step. That's not legalism. okay? What that is is wisdom. It's just going to take that. And I would encourage you to take steps toward saturating your soul in the Bible. Join me, read the whole New Testament in the month of January. All right, next one, authentic friendship, okay? Here's what I mean by authentic friendship. You need friends who disagree with you. You need friends that have different political opinions than you do. You need friends that are transparent with you and honest with you, you need friends that you can open up to and be completely real with. How does that connect to this message? Because our culture has such a strong pull on us toward worshiping celebrities, toward kind of exalting figures in our society and leaning too heavily on other people for who we are, that we need friends who will be like, no, that's just not true. And we have so many blind spots and we're so easily deceived that we need not Facebook friends or Instagram likes, we need real friends who are sitting across the table from confessing sin to. So authentic friendship. The third thing is Serious involvement. Okay, posting on social media does not count as serious involvement. Okay, here's what I mean by this. Some of you are resonating with what I was saying about Jesus making everything right. Being a person who cares about the poor and the marginalized, he cares about justice, he's going to make everything right, and you think can I like capture that clip and put it on my Instagram page? And I'm saying that doesn't count as being involved. You didn't do anything. Okay, what I mean by serious involvement is that you put aside sort of this digital fakeness and you go serve. You do something. And that's important because here's what you're going to find if you actually get involved and you start doing something, you will have this deep and serious conviction that the world is so broken that you cannot fix it. It will create desperation for Jesus, and it will chip away your self-righteousness. Social media is a place of perpetual self-righteousness where people stand up for things that they do not do. And we need to be different than that because we have a real king who is really going to hold us accountable. And we will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus, not for what we post, but for what we do. Last thing, purposeful worship. Okay. We need to be people that don't just consume Bible and aren't just saturated by the truth of the Bible, but who follow the beams of the sun back to the sun itself. Which means I think that we are a culture who is craving silence and solitude and worship of Jesus. Here's what I want to encourage all of us to do. In fact, I dare you to do it, right? Take 30 minutes Just set aside 30 minutes over the next several weeks. 30 minutes. I'm not asking for a lot. And uh, come, like write one Bible verse that's encouraged you on a note card. And just sit in silence for 30 minutes. And just say, speak, your servant hears, to Jesus. Let him meet you there. And then when you're done with the 30 minutes, Flip on your favorite worship song and sing it to him. Worship him. See, what we're looking for in this celebrity craze obsessed culture is we're looking for someone to worship. But everyone is disappointing us because, as St. Augustine said a couple thousand years ago, your heart will not be at rest until you find your rest in God. So let's come to him this Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, being the leader who will not fail us. Thank you that um, we don't have to hold back. We don't have to be careful. We don't have to wonder when your fall is going to come or when you're going to mess up or when you're going to stop being... Uh, who you say you are we don't have to uh, worry about you flying off the handle or flipping a switch Uh, but we can trust that you are the same yesterday today and forever that um, your integrity is perfect that you are righteous and that we can trust your promise and so i ask that that would begin to in a practical way work its way out into each of our lives where we turn away from sort of the normal cultural way of doing things and we turn to find our rest in you jesus pray this all in in your name amen